Hello, and welcome to the first experimental pilot episode of the SIU podcast. Today we're talking with Stephen Kadek, who's a professor at UCL in chemistry. He's the director of innovation with Wilhelm Trust and co-founder of two startups, Thialytics, that are developing a platform to make sustainable therapeutics and synthetic pages, which was one of the first open access journals. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Um, we're on the tail end of a really interesting event we hosted on if PhD students are just human pipettes. And I have so many questions to ask you. But first of all, it seems like you've been into translating science for quite a while. So back in 2010, you published a paper on a mythology on and substituted bromomalamide derivatives, yeah. uh, how you can use that to conjugate proteins. And in a statement you gave in, in an interview back then, you said something like, and I hope I get this right, that you were delighted about the positive results and that it might be applicable both in basic science, but also through out to industry in both the healthcare sector and in nanotechnology. So when did this passion for translatability begin for you? Um, well, it probably started, I, I've always been interested in, um, in entrepreneurship. I mean, when I was very young, I, I sort of had little businesses cutting wood and selling it and all of that sort of thing. Uh, and then I worked in industry after my degree and could see the power of working in teams and trying to work on a particular challenge. So it's always been there. Then when I did a PhD, I worked on a very esoteric problem, and that was great. I enjoyed it a lot, uh, and also as a postdoc. And um, I suppose after about five or six years as an academic, my interest in translation started to get... Um, I began, began to get more interested in seeing whether or not what we did in the lab would have an impact beyond the lab. And, um, and so I was always on the lookout then for applications. And then when I moved to UCL, I decided that uh, in 2003, really, uh, I decided I wanted to do something different. And so I started to work on protein modification. And I was interested in that because I could see the power of chemical methodology for making modified biomolecules and that power of biology and chemistry coming together, I knew you could make an impact there. You know, the, 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 the precision of synthetic chemistry and the, the diversity of, 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 of the way that biomolecules get generated in biological systems. Okay. And on the point of translatability, I also believe you went on to found Thialetics on some of the ideas you developed in that research, right? Yeah, we, um, we, we set Phylogics up as a company because we, we generated some intellectual property and felt that it was important to then think about creating a, a, a small company. Um, it's really, at the moment, it's a, it's a vehicle for us to try and grow the technology to the point where the platform can then be used to make products and also to help others make products. And it's been going very well. We've got a lot of collaborations um, a number of different interesting opportunities have, have arisen as a consequence. Yeah. I want to dive into that, but actually I, I want to just take a step back. You mentioned that 
when you're very young, you do these woodcutting projects, setting up many businesses. Yeah. Is it something you got from your parents, or how do do you begin to earn as a kid? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, of course, the pragmatic or the simple answer is I quite liked having money in my pocket, mm. um, and I came from uh, I came from a background where there was an enormous amount of money around. So. Um, and my parents were small business owners and um, they ran a restaurant and things of that sort. So, so I, I guess it was just in there. And, um, and I was helped by my parents a little bit and um, they encouraged that sort of thing. So I think it sort of comes from fairly early on. There is a program at UCL that was developed by someone that I always like. It's called uh, Citrus Saturday. And it's a program for helping young teenagers, 13-year-olds, I think, um, generate uh, selling lemonade. And they learn how to make lemonade, they understand about the cost, and then they price it and then they go and sell it. And they get to keep the money at the end of the day. And what's important about that is that when you're in the business of making a product and then selling a product and then making a profit from it, that's very empowering for a lot of people. You know, it's very empowering. Just pure curiosity, how does the management work in that process with the selling lemonade? Are they self-organized or do they have someone? No, no, there's a structure in place that, that helps them um, learn about profit and loss and, okay. and that sort of thing and, and helps provide the source materials and all of that. Uh, and then they pay it back. That sounds really interesting. Um, but moving on a bit, so you're you're both a professor of chemistry at UCL, also the director of innovation in the Wellcome Trust. Yeah. And I was wondering how your work as a researcher informed the work you do with the Wellcome Trust and the other way around. Well, the, in between being a professor and, um, and working at Wellcome, I was also vice provost for enterprise, and in that, I was responsible for UCL's work across the whole translational agenda. Uh, partnerships with industry, entrepreneurship programs, technology transfer, um, etc. And so I learned a lot about what enables translation. Um, one of the things that I learned was that you have to try and make it easy and you have to align incentives. And so in our new innovation program at the Wellcome Trust, I've tried to build those in. And we have translational partnerships with the universities, which are dedicated to try and helping make translation that little bit easier. Translation is really hard and um, you know we have to help people make that first step. So you say the program has things in place to make translatability easier. Could you give a, a specific example of what that could be? So we might give some money to, for someone to get some advice on writing a business plan or developing a clinical trial protocol or doing a proof of concept experiment. If you look at scientific careers, the old song goes, you do a PhD, you do a postdoc, and then maybe there's a course with a couple of postdocs, and eventually you become a PI. That's sort of the end goal. But if you look at the amount of PI positions, it's very small compared to the number of PhD students we have. And, and they're all working towards this goal, and there's so few positions. Is that a problem in, in that case? How do we solve it? Do we just think about alternative endpoints in scientific careers? Absolutely. I think the endpoint 
the endpoint clearly is not for many becoming a PI. And I think that a lot has happened in PhD training, which surrounds the overall PhD experience. There are a lot of opportunities for people to explore other elements, whether or not that's part-time MBA, or whether or not it's simply doing some courses or events, like the one we've had to, tonight where you bring people together. Starting up a company is easier now than it's ever been. There's more money around for people to start up companies. So I think you're right, it is a problem if we decide that it goes undergraduate, graduate, you know, postdoc, PI, because the reality is that's only going to be for a relatively small number of the, the many tens of thousands of PhDs that there are in the UK and, and, and many hundreds of thousands around the world. Okay. So one of the things I liked most about our talk tonight was your perspective on failure, which you talked about quite a lot. Um, you hear in science, it's a lot about persistence and perseverance and grit. And I was wondering how if you think back how an apparent failure of yours has later set you up for success, do you have a favorite failure? Favorite failure? Um, I'm not sure I really ever really enjoyed failure that much. Um, but I've experienced a lot of it. I think um, one of the most painful failures was in my PhD where I had convinced myself that I understood why a previous failure had failed. And I spent a few months thinking about this and then designed some experiments. And then they all uniformly failed as well. So it was failure after failure. But from that came a greater understanding. And then I designed some new substrates. And it took me another year and a half, but right towards the end of my PhD, I then saw uh, success. And probably the most important thing was I was getting towards the end, I had a very small amount of material, very small quantity. And I thought, well, I can try and do half a dozen experiments to see whether or not this is going to, how I can make this work. I was assuming that I would perhaps need to sort of incrementally see some success and then see a bit more and then refine and refine. And actually, I didn't do that. I put all the material in a single experiment. So and all the eggs in one basket. I did, and it worked. And then a series of substrates that I then prepared within a period of two to three weeks, I got enough material for, in the end, about three or four publications. But I'm not sure what I learned from that. So the time was of the essence. Mm -hmm. And I think in the end, I just simply wanted to give it one last shot. So um, I guess, I'm not sure if that's a favorite failure, but it certainly, um, in the end, you just have to take a gamble sometimes. And I was lucky in that particular case it worked out. Um, a couple of rapid fire questions. So first, if you could give, give a piece of advice to a young student just beginning a PhD, what would it be? And similarly, if you could give a piece of advice to a student just finishing a PhD, what would it be? It would be the same piece of advice to both. Figure out what you want to do and focus on that. Be really honest about what you want to do. So assume that you can achieve anything in the world, mm -hmm. what would you like your achievement to be? 
and I would say that to a 12-year-old, I'd say it to a 70-year-old, and I'd say it to a PhD student at the beginning or the end. Once you figure out what you want to achieve, quite a lot of other things fall into place. Yeah, it's just about figuring out what you actually want to do. The hardest thing. Yeah. All right, the next one. In your opinion, what character traits would distinguish good researchers from great researchers? Being bold. Being bold, yeah. yeah. You have to be bold in thinking about science. It, you know, conservative ideas don't change the world. So being bold and willing to embark upon big challenging problems with uncertain outcomes. I think that's, that's important. Um, being persistent, but also knowing when to cut your losses, sure. uh, I think is also important. And, um, and managing your time effectively so you can wring out every, the most important asset that you have is your time. So managing your time is really important. I'm not being bold. Do you think the current way we incentivize PIs, PhD students, research in general, encourages being bold? In some subjects, I think we get that quite right. In fact, in the biomedical community, I think there's a lot of evidence that in the UK, there's a lot of bold thinking. Um, it's easy to say, it's hard to do, you know, there is, the problem with doing something bold is it might take you 30 years. And um, the world is not as patient. It's never really been patient, but it's not always patient. So things like getting a job, getting tenure, you know, all of those things, getting a research grant. Um, you know, you have to figure out how to satisfy those Things as well, whilst maintaining your commitment to being bold. The way one person described this to me, they said, you should have one really big, bold idea, and you should have another one that's a sort of almost a certainty that you like know, can generate. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's quite right, but it's a strategy. Yeah, I, I might be concerned on that point. If you have, if you have that backup thing, you can always go back to you won't pursue the bold idea as I think that's probably right and so you have to decide how much risk you're willing to take personally. On, on a bit of a different note, we talked tonight about PhD students being human pipettes and a perspective that might be interesting to take in that discussion is that of automation because we hear a lot in different areas that AI is coming, robotics coming and they're automating the jobs. How do you think this will impact science? Will it be a good thing? Anything you'd be concerned about? Uh, well, there's complexity in the whole artificial intelligence um, area, uh, and it's tremendously exciting. But there are challenges that have been recognized by some of the leading edge uh, communities in, in AI in particular. One of the things I can reflect on was the impact of combinatorial chemistry on chemistry in the, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, where it looked as if synthetic chemistry was going to be commoditized. Um, 
automation, I think, can be a great friend of removing the routine from, from humans. I think AI is different, um, but I suspect that the collaboration between intelligent robots and humans is going to be a you know, very productive area of development of human, uh, of human endeavor. So I think, you know, so-called cobotics, I think, is going to be a really, really interesting area where, you know, well, we're seeing this in, for example, the development of, of new ways in which we can um, improve outcomes for trauma patients, etc. Maybe what's going in. So I think, I think there's there's a lot of merit where we can sort of automate some fairly routine things and that's inevitable, we see that time and time again. I think, um, anything about sequencing or something? Yeah. Um, AI, I think, you know, the next 20 years is going to be terribly exciting with AI and it will revolutionise everything. There will be many pluses, there may be some, some things that we've not yet figured out, some unintended consequences. Impact on PhD students, in the end, I'm a big believer that people um, as a species, I think we're in pretty good health. We're very creative, imaginative, and um, despite the wonderful advances in AI, I still think there'll be uh, room for human creativity as well as um, artificial intelligence. Okay, on the point of creativity, one last question. I'm currently reading the new Walter Isaacson biography on Leonardo da Vinci. Mm -hmm. and it's first of all, it's a great book, I really recommend it. And for me, he's such a fascinating person for a lot of reasons, but one of the most tantalizing is he combines science with engineering and with art. So science and, and art are the different things for him, it's the same thing. He's doing these amazing things in science, but he's also creative, like a curious soul. And I was wondering, in your opinion, what can we do to nurture the same kind of creativity and curiosity in PhD students? Yeah, um, the disciplinary silos that exist, um, and I don't mean that negatively, I mean that just as a, as a statement that, you know, departmental or disciplinary silos are being broken down, but they're, they're often being broken down because of, um, uh, because they're challenge-led. So in my area, you know, how do we eliminate malaria or whatever, and we might need robotics, we might need biology, need medicine, we need data, etc. etc. That's all great stuff. Um, I'm interested also in cross-disciplinarity cross as a way of exploring the world. And the word I would use there is almost design. So if you think about molecular design, mathematical design, architectural design, the bringing together of thoughts and ideas, whether or not they're in the arts, the sciences and engineering, I think in the end we're all kind of designers and understanding how things could be put together either as a jigsaw or perhaps as a painting. So bringing things together and creating something new that is not simply a composite. And I think that is an underpinning element of creativity, which I think is, is perhaps 
part of what Da Vinci showed us and part of what we might hope to achieve in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Professor Stephen Kadic and also the new format that we're piling here at the SIU. You can go to our webpage scienceunion.org and check out the editorial section and stay posted for the next podcast. Thank you.